All right. Um, I'm going to do a prayer for the persecuted church again tonight, guys. Uh, tonight, we're going to be uh, talking about and praying for North Korea. Uh, and what I've, I'm doing, I'm actually, uh, I'm using the Open Doors. Uh, Open Doors uh, is a group that keeps up with persecution of Christians throughout the world and make a list every year. Uh, and, and number one, of course, as we looked a couple weeks ago, was Afghanistan. Uh, this week, it's North Korea. North Korea is actually number two on the list. Uh, it's North Korea has actually been at the top of this list for 20, over 20 years, either number one or in that neighborhood. So persecution of Christians there has been uh, a really, really serious thing for a long, long time. North Korea, uh, most of what we know in North Korea, of course, we see on TV, we see on the news. Uh, uh, it's got a population of around 26 million people. You've probably all seen the picture uh, of North Korea at night. Uh, there's like three dots of light, which are the major cities in the rest of the countries, completely shut off. They shut off the electricity at night uh, in all but a few small places. And so uh, that gives you some kind of an idea of what these folks live in. Uh, out of that 26 million people, there are approximately 400,000 in that group that are uh, professing Christians. Uh, mainly it's an agnostic country. Uh, they, they don't like religion. Uh, they basically want you to worship the Kim family. Uh, Kim Jong-un, which I'm sure all of you are familiar with, uh, right now is the dictator there, passed to him from his father. Uh, he is, uh, he's one of those people that you often hear people say, well, somebody needs to just get rid of him. The problem with that is, is from what all indications are, uh, his sister is worse and she will become uh, the leader when he uh, is gone at some point in time uh, in, the, in their dictatorship. And of course we know he's developing a long range missile uh, program, if you want to call it that. It's, uh, it's uh, sort of uh, baling twine, put together with baling twine. If, you know what I'm saying, but it is getting better, uh, and he's building that to go along with their uh, a fledgling nuclear program. So these are people just from what you know of the leadership of this country that are not extremely feeling people to begin with in terms of the world and that kind of thing. And so it's not surprising that their persecution of Christians is very, very harsh. Uh, they view Christianity and Christians as the single group that can cause the Kim family the most problem, okay? And so they squash it with everything that they've got. Uh, anybody who's in North Korea uh, and is found to be a Christian following Jesus uh, is at immediate risk of uh, at least uh, imprisonment, uh, brutal torture. Uh, they'll beat on them for hours, literally, uh, and, and death ultimately. So, uh, and, and the, the, the issues don't stop there because uh, even their family oftentimes will be drug into that because they're not supposed to be allowing that to go in their homes. So uh, oftentimes people, you know, it draws in the whole family. Uh, what's kind of wild about that, and I think it's just that we see uh, uh, the work that God does is it, the, all, by all appearances, the church is actually growing in North Korea, uh, which just shows that God is no respecter of persons. Uh, uh, you know, as he said, 
The rocks will cry out if the people don't uh, to worship Him. And I think that's what we're seeing there. Uh, they're literally the main way that they get any, any sort of Christian message is through the use of illegal radios. Uh, I, don't, I can't tell you how they get them. I have no idea how they come across these things. But uh, they will have small house churches um, and oftentimes uh, it's simply, it, it, it can be a situation where it's a, just a mother and a father and they'll have one of these radios and they'll listen to Christian broadcasts. And they do have a, a group of people who stand ready to spread the gospel there if it ever becomes safe enough to do. Uh, I think the gospel is spreading under cover, of course. Uh, one of the things I read, and I thought this was one of the saddest things, is that many times if the adults in the family are Christians, they won't tell their children about Jesus because if their children go out and tell anybody that, then they'll likely be killed or, you know, and, and the children might be as well. Uh, so it's, a, it's an extremely uh, difficult situation. Uh, it's literally to the point that the Open Doors group has set up in China, just across the, the North Korean border, they've set up uh, safe houses for people who come out of North Korea who are Christians. It's not really safe to be a Christian in China either, uh, but if you can figure if you're trying to get into China for a safer situation religiously, that's a scary thought. Uh, they do have these safe houses set up though, where they're, very, they're very, set up very quietly, where these people can come in and through word of mouth, people know that. Now, with COVID going on, uh, North Korea had just shuttered its borders completely. There's nobody coming in. There was nobody going out. Uh, most, most medical people feel like they've probably had a problem for quite some time. But uh, just in the last few days, they've started to admit to having some COVID issues and that kind of thing. Uh, and I really only mentioned that to show you that that's how tightly sealed their borders have been. Uh, they literally just they had an opportunity to shut it off where nobody could come in and go out. And to a great degree, they've done that. So uh, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, things that need to be prayed for for these folks is just praying for Christians who worship secretly, uh, Christians who are in prison, uh, and the families of these people uh, because they're in danger as well. Uh, praying for the heart of the leadership to be opened up to Christ. Uh, you know, we, we look at those things and we see those things on a world stage and you think, well, that really can't ever happen. But there shouldn't be any kind of a, ch a church in North Korea under the circumstances. And yet 400,000 people are still Christians. So, uh, you know, God can do that. Uh, also pray uh, for the Safe House Network in China because that's a, a, a tenuous situation as well. Uh, and pray for Christian parents as they tell their kids about Jesus because uh, the ones who do are taking a mighty big risk. Uh, and then pray, of course, for healing for those who face trauma because of their beliefs. So, uh, you know, these things I think are very good for us to see. Uh, it's terrible that they happen, uh, but we talk in the youth room a lot that just we don't know what persecution is in America. I mean, we, we, we're seeing it coming uh, we'll, our kids will probably see it in their lifetime. But to the degree that these people, you know, most of the time, the worst thing here is you don't, I tell them you don't get invited to the party <laughs> or you're not in the cool group or whatever. That's nothing upside what these people are living through. And so 
uh, we need to be uh, very diligent to pray uh, for them. So let's, I tell you, let's go ahead now and we'll just pray for them right now. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for your blessings. Uh, thank you, Lord, for allowing us to come tonight and worship you freely in a country where that's uh, a legal thing to do. And I'm prayerful, God, that we would be people that even if it wasn't, we'd still be doing it. Uh, but I, I know, Lord, that those are things that you do, uh, not us within our flesh. And we're thankful for these folks who are in North Korea who are believers. Uh, and uh, we pray, God, for all of these folks, Lord, who, who live there and, and are believers, uh, for those who have to worship in secret. Uh, we pray for their safety, Lord, that they'll be able to do that. Uh, be able to worship your name, Lord, and tell others about you, God. We pray for the salvation of their leadership, that they might come to know you. Uh, again, Lord, that's a thing that on the human end doesn't look uh, promising, but uh, you are God and all things are possible with you. And we, we do pray for that, Lord, that that country would be opened up to uh, situations where your word could be shared freely. We pray for those who are in prison and their families. Uh, the families of those who've lost loved ones because they believed in you. Uh, again, these people stand out to us, Lord, as those willing to die uh, for the name of Christ. And we know, Lord, that you enable a person to have that bravery and that, that, that kind of uh, commitment. But we also uh, are thankful, Lord, for, those, for the example they set in that. And we pray, Lord, for those people in those situations, God. Uh, also, we pray for healing for those who've been traumatized by these situations, Lord, many who have been beaten and imprisoned and, and, and put back on the streets, and uh, Lord, that they would not lose their faith, that they would not turn, uh, and that they would uh, do a work, God, to honor and glorify you. Thank you for loving us and for blessing us, and we ask you, Lord, to bless these people in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Judges chapter 9. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, we uh, talked about Gideon. Uh, and, uh, you know, we uh, went through the... the First part of the story, which which uh, most of us are very familiar with, uh, and also uh, talked about the end of the story um, that uh, I would say most of us are not familiar with. Um, after the great battle against the Midianites and the great victory there, uh, we see Gideon uh, go from being uh, a faithful, humble servant of God uh, to being arrogant, uh, to being vengeful, to taking matters into his own hand and, and even acting like a king and, and worshiping idols. Um, and we uh, get to the end of Gideon's life, and we see that he took many wives, and he had 70 sons, um, and then also had a uh, concubine in the city of Shechem, and had a son with her, and were given his name uh, that's Abimelech. And uh, if there was any question of whether Gideon thought himself to be like a king, um, that mystery is soon put uh, is soon answered um, when we see that he named his son Abimelech, which which means my father is the king. 
Um, so uh, you see Gideon start off really well, and we see him not end quite so well. Um, but nevertheless, we get to the end of, of chapter 8 and verse uh, 33. Um, and uh, actually, let's look at verse 32. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Orphrah of the Abizurites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Baroth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all of the enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all of the seventy sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So let's talk about kind of the history of what's going on here. Shechem is a very popular city in the Old Testament. It crops up several times um, and it's no mistake that this is taking place in Shechem. And what is happening here it, by this, in God's providence, and this taking place in Shechem, God is showing us just how far the children of Israel have fallen. So if you go through and look up all the different things that happened at Shechem, you'll see that that's the first place where uh, uh, Abraham uh, received covenant promises from God. Um, you'll see that that's um, a very particular place with Jacob and his sons. Um, and it pops up several times in that story. Um, in uh, moving forward, looking at Joseph, um, that he had requested when he was in Egypt that his bones be brought back um, to uh, the nation of Israel or to the land of Canaan whenever he uh, had died. And Shechem is where they buried Joseph. So this is a very, very prominent place, uh, a lot of spiritual significance. And we see... Uh, in this particular time frame, um, the majority of the city of Shechem was idolaters. Um, they, had, they had forsaken uh, the God who had, uh, who had delivered them so many times before and instead went after this other God, Baal Baroth. And it, it's important to mention, too, the meaning of that name, uh, Baal Barith, um, Baal meaning Lord of, okay, and uh, Barith meaning covenant. So not only did they dabble in the worship with these other gods, you know, before the, the nation of Israel had engaged in what we would call syncretism, where they would take little bits of this belief, little bit of this belief, and they would never really seemingly fully commit to these other idols. But in this particular time, they have made a covenant with this idol. Um, they've made a covenant with Baal now. Um, so this has moved. Uh, this has moved way further uh, than it has in the past. Um, using the analogy that's used so often in here, uh, in in the book of Judges, you know, in in past episodes, they were committing adultery with these gods. They were they were having an affair or a fling or whatever, and now they've married the god. So they've moved one step further in in their depravity. So, interesting thing about this chapter, uh, nowhere in this chapter will you see God's covenant name. You'll never see Yahweh in this chapter. Um, in our English text, it'll be signified by L-O-R-D, but it will be all caps. 
Um, so you'll never see that in here, and that's, that's on purpose. Uh, the writer wanted to do that on purpose, that although God is present during this, and we'll see a couple of times where the curtain is kind of pulled back and we see what God's doing, um, no one ever mentions God, no one ever calls out to God, no one ever asks God what His will would be for the nation of Israel. Instead, just as we read in the last verse of the book of Judges, everyone in this story does what's right in their own eyes. Um, and and they, they do whatever they feel like is the best thing that they want to do right now. Um, and we'll see how that turns out uh, for, for these people. So anyway, so now we've got Gideon is gone. He's got 70 sons, and then he's got this one illegitimate son of this concubine. So since Gideon had set himself up to be some semblance of a ruler, you know, whether he would call himself king or judge or, or whatever he would call himself, there was a power vacuum when he died. And um, according to what Abimelech says here, it sounds like his 70 sons had kind of taken over as some sort of uh, oligarchy or something that would be kind of doing a joint rule over the children of Israel. And Abimelech, of course, would have been left out of this because he was not a legitimate son. He was a son of a concubine. And Abimelech <clears throat> is an interesting character in that uh, Abimelech cares about one thing and one thing only, and that's what Abimelech wants. That's what's good for Abimelech. He is completely controlled by his desires and his ambitions and, and completely ignores um, any other thing that would have any influence in his life. That, that is the thing that drives him. So he has this plan that uh, if he's going to be able to fulfill his desires to rule and to lead and to be powerful and important, he's got to get rid of his brothers. And so he uh, goes to the people of Shechem and, and, and has, this, uh, has this plan that he's hatching with them. Uh, verse 2, "...which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jerubbabel or, or Gideon rule over you, or that one person would rule over you? And remember also that I'm your flesh and blood. I'm, I'm your bone and your flesh." And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all of the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts were inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-barith, uh, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. So think about this. Uh, this story is kind of breaking the cycle that we've seen so far in the book of Judges. So if you'll remember, you know, we've gone over this over and over that, that uh, Judges follows the cycle where the children of Israel disobey God, they fall into idolatry, and then they repent and they cry out to God, and God delivers them via a, a judge which God chose and God rose up. Um, but instead, you don't see any... That you see the idolatry, so that's you know part one of the cycle. You don't see any repentance. You don't see any outside forces that come in and take over the children of Israel. Um, the children of Israel are still under their own control, um, and you you don't see uh, the leader that's 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 being elevated here. You don't see him being chosen by God. Instead, he was chosen by himself. Instead, he, he and, and the people of this town made this decision based off of what they wanted to do, what they felt like was the best move to make, and then make Abimelech um, their, their ruler. So they give him 
uh, silver, they fund this expedition uh, out of the uh, coffers of the temple of this Baal Baroth. So they fund, they fund this mission with, uh, with idol money. Verse 5, And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbabel, seventy men on one stone. So this, this on one stone uh, is supposed to let you know that this wasn't like a, I'm rushing in with all these men and slaughtering all these dudes and leaving, but instead he drugged them out and execution style put these guys down in the middle of town for everyone to see. And no doubt this is intentional. Um, he wants everyone to see, I'm the most powerful, and if you go against me, this is what's going to happen. And I will not spare anyone, not even my own brothers. This is what Abimelech wanted the people to see. And so that's what he did. But Jotham, the youngest of Jerubbabel, uh, was left, and he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all of Beth Melio, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Verse 7, when it was told to Jotham, uh, he, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried out aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, uh, that God may listen to you. So this place uh, where Shechem is is in a valley. It's between two mountains. Um, several episodes in the Old Testament take place here at, at this mountain of Gerizim. Um, apparently the acoustics of this area allowed for uh, one speaker to speak to a, a large group of people and then be able to hear him. Um, and so that's where Jotham goes. Uh, and he, he's going to have this speech and he's going to tell a parable uh, for, for the people of Shechem uh, and, and actually give a prophecy in doing so. <clears throat> so verse 7, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which the gods and men are honored and go and, and hold sway over the trees? And the, and the trees said to the fig tree, You come and roll over us. But the fig tree said to him, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And then the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and, and, and go and hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you're anointing me king over you, uh, and then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon." All right, so let's think about this. The olive tree, the fig tree, and, and the grapevine all provide something. They all, you know, the olive tree provided oil that they used to light lamps and to, to anoint kings and to use as medicine. The fig tree is the main fruit crop that, uh, that, that uh, this area would, would have. Um, and, of course, the grapevine would provide them with, with wine, which is what they most often drank. So all of these three plants provide something and they're useful, but the bramble is completely worthless and useless. And uh, Jotham is, is, uh, is obviously comparing Abimelech to this bramble and saying, you asking Abimelech to rule over you is just like if the trees all got together and decided to let the bramble rule over them. 
Um, and it's ridiculous that the bramble tree says, come in and get in my shade, because you think about an olive tree, you think about a fig tree, you think about even a grapevine. All of these things you know, are up higher, and a bramble is down at the ground. The other thing about the bramble is thinking about not only does the bramble not produce anything, it doesn't provide any service, it actually causes farmers quite a bit of trouble. They have to, you know, if you've ever tried to garden or anything, you have to fight back weeds all the time. And this is no, no different in this day and age. And then the bramble would get uh, very dry and would catch on fire randomly. So not only would the bramble not provide anything, it was actually destructive. And it, and, and it was kind of the bane of the, of the farmer's existence to have bramble around. Uh, and yet, in this parable, Jotham is telling the people of Shechem, this is what you're choosing. This, this, is, this is an example of what your choice looks like. Verse 19, if in good faith, uh, the bramble says, if in good, uh, let's see, verse 15, and the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. It's verse 16, now therefore, this is Jotham talking again, if you've acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech the king, if you've dealt well with Jerubbabel and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, uh, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of his female servant king over the leaders of Shechem because he is your relative. If then you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbabel and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech, and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and with Beth Milio. And let fire come out uh, uh, from the leaders of Shechem and both Beth Milio and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir uh, and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. So Jotham gets up, has this speech, and he basically tells them that if you really want Abimelech to be your king, then you both deserve one another. Whatever happens, you both deserve it. Abimelech deserves it whenever you eventually turn on him and devour him, and you deserve it whenever he basically sets your city on fire. Um, after this, verse 22, uh, Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. So we all knew this was coming from what, uh, what had been seen. Uh, but can you imagine Jotham, after seeing 69 of his brothers murdered in the middle of the street, um, can you imagine him hiding out for three years, waiting to see if this prophecy that he had was going to come true? Waiting to see if God was going to allow all of this chaos to take place that had been taking place. And there's Jotham sitting and hiding, hoping that he's not found, hoping he's not discovered and, and, and drug out in the street and killed. All the while, Abimelech is ruling and, and living his best life now. Uh, but in verse 23, we see God intervene. And it, it, it reads kind of odd to us to see that God is sending an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. But what we need to recognize is that God is sovereign, and these are His people. 
and, and God is good and righteous and just in everything that He does. And the fact that, that God helps to, uh, in, through his providence, calls uh, uh, these people, Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, to have a falling out um, is, is evidence of God's grace and his mercy for his people. Um, that he's not going to allow this, this tragedy of Abimelech being in control uh, to last forever. Um, God is faithful to his people, and he's not going to allow them to, to live in the situation that they've put themselves in forever. Um, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. Verse 24, uh, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their, their brother who killed them. And the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by along them that way. And it was told to Abimelech. So the leaders conspired, they got together, they set up these little, uh, these little strike forces or militias around the city. And anyone coming into the city to pay tribute to Abimelech, uh, they would be robbed. So he, he's, they're, they're cutting off Abimelech um, and, and, and starving his economy that he's trying to, to set up. Um, and we don't see him do anything, but uh, we move to verse 26. And Gael, the son of Ebed, uh, moved into Shechem with his relatives. And the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field, and they gathered the grapes from the vineyards, and trod them, and held a festival. And they went back to the house of their god, and ate, and drank, and reviled Abimelech. Um, so this is a, a, yearly, a yearly festival they would have at har- harvest time, and they would go into the temple of Belbereth, and they would get all this wine, and get all this stuff, and eat, and drink, and be merry. And this particular time, um, they sat around, drank wine, and and uh, 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 said terrible things about Abimelech. Um, and Gael the son of Ebed, this is verse 28, said, Who is this Abimelech, and, and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel, and is not Zebel his officer? Uh, serve the men of Hamar, the, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Uh, would that his people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. So this guy gets drunk and starts railing off these drunken threats towards Abimelech. Um, and he's in the same situation that Abimelech was in at the first of the chapter. He's with all of these leaders of the city. And uh, he's doing the same exact thing that that uh, Abimelech had done. He, he's He's convincing them to betray the person that's over them, and to follow him. And uh, it just goes to show that these people, their loyalty uh, was, was only so thick. And it, uh, it eventually, uh, Abimelech uh, gets out of their favor, and they're ready to move on to the next leader. Um, <clears throat> so he, get, he has this threat. Uh, verse 30, When Zebul, the ruler of the city, heard these words of Gaal, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled. He sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, Behold, uh, Gaal, the son of Ebed, and his relatives had come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. 
Now therefore go by night, you and all the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he heard, when he and the people who were with him uh, come out against you, you may do to them uh, as your hand finds to do. So Abimelech and all of those who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gael the son of Ebed went out and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gael saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, there are people coming down the mountaintops. And Zebul said to him, You mistake uh, the shadow of the mountains for men. Gael spoke again and said, Look, there are people coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. Then Zebul said to him, Where is your mouth now? You who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gaal went out to the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him, and many fell wounded upon the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arumah, and Zebul uh, drove out Gahal and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. And that should be the end of the story. Uh, Abimelech has, has ran off uh, the guy who uh, was a threat to his throne, and uh, he, he's, he said everything right again, you know, in his own eyes. Um, and so that should be the end of it. But uh, Abimelech can't stop there. Uh, he, he's, depo- he's, he's gotten rid of this guy who tried to, tried to set up an insurrection, uh, but his ambition and his desire and his, his, his uh, uh, selfishness will not allow him to stop there. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem, this is verse 46. Wait, 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 I missed, I skipped a part. Verse 42, on the following day the people went out into the field, and, and Abimelech was told, And he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw people coming out of the city. So he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field, and he killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city that day. He captured the city, and he killed the people who were in it, and he raised the city, and he sowed it with salt. So... The following day, after this big battle, uh, the people look around, they see that the war's over, and they finally feel confident enough to leave the city and go out into the fields and return to work. And so these are not soldiers that are going out after Abimelech. These are civilians that thought that things were safe now that, that Gahal had been run off. But what Abimelech does is he divides his army up into three, peop- three groups. He puts two groups at the city gate and one group out in the field to chase all the people back to them, and then they slaughtered them in the field. Um, he kills all of the people in, in the whole town, and then he burns the city to the ground, and then he and all of his men get a bunch of salt and spread salt around like you're spreading seeds so that the, so that the ground around Shechem will never grow produce again. Um, this is insane. He, he, he just can't stand that the city of Shechem turned against him, and in his hatred and in, and in his selfishness and in his ambition, um, he goes on this murderous, this murderous spree. Um, and then verse 46, when all of the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard about this, they entered the stronghold of the house of El Barith, so like a fortress. Um, 
And Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the town of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to the mountain of Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And then he said to the men that were with him, What you've seen me do, hurry and do, do as I have done. So every one of the people cut his own bundle, and following Abimelech, they put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire, so that all the people of the town of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. So whoever was left of the city of Shechem, they went into this fortress, and Abimelech uh, and, his, and his crew uh, set a fire around the base of it, and kept the fire going until it burned all of them alive. Then... Abimelech went to Thebes and camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of that city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went to the roof of the tower. So now he's gone 10 miles up the road to a city that had nothing to do with any of this, and he's destroying that city just because. And he, all of the people run to the tower again, and so he begins to do the same thing that he did last time. And Abimelech came to the tower, verse 52, and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. So this would be a big round stone, like uh, 18 inches across, two or three inches thick, that would be on top of a, of a mill where they would turn it and grind corn in, or, or, or wheat or whatever into flour. Um, and this woman, I'm pretty impressed. She was able to haul this thing up to the top of the tower, which I'm sure was very heavy, and drop it on this guy's head and hit him. Um, and it crushed his skull, but it didn't kill him. Uh, verse 54, Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me a woman killed him. And his, the young man uh, thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his seventy brothers. And God also made all of the evil men of Shechem return to their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. So this is such a crazy story, and we see so much sin, so much depravity on, on every part, every party involved. On Abimelech, on the members of the the the, the uh, leaders of the city of Shechem, on Gaal that tried to raise uh, a, a rebellion or insurrection, um, and yet we see God working still despite all of this. How gracious and how how patient is our God that despite this this deep seated depravity that goes from the top to the bottom, um, He still. Uh, is intervening in the lives of his children. He's still working things out through his providence to bring about freedom to a group of people who never asked for it, to a group of people who, who, who never repented, who never cried out to God, yet God is faithful. And I think something that we can draw from this is that God is faithful uh, in spite of us. It's not that, that God is faithful only when, we, only when we repent, only when we do what, what God tells us to do, but instead, and, and God's faithfulness is not based on, on how, how we respond to Him. Uh, God's faithfulness is based on who God is and God's character. And God promised and made a covenant with these people, and even though they had ran off on Him several times, even though they had married themselves to this other God, um, 
That doesn't change anything for God because God's faithfulness is based on who God is, not on, not on who we are as a people. Um, so I think that's one thing that we can draw from this. I think another thing that we can draw from this is how, uh, how foolish these people were to totally forsake um, God and, and trying to seek God's will for who should be a leader over them. And instead, they just did whatever they thought was best. And Abimelech did what he thought was best. And we see where that ended up. These people ended up destroying one another um, out of their selfishness, out of their greed, out of their desire for power, out of their, their um, ambition uh, for vengeance. Um, they end up destroying one another. Um, and, you know, thinking about how each of the judges that we run into is supposed to exemplify Christ in some way, shape, or form. And, and, and we see some little glimmer, some little, some little facet of, of Christ and who He is in each of the judges. But Abimelech was not a judge. Abimelech was not raised up by God. Abimelech was, was, was never delivered the people of Israel. He has absolutely no redeeming qualities at all. Um, there's no way to point from Abimelech to Christ apart from just how un-Christ-like he is. Um, we see Abimelech who, who has this claim to be the son of a king, and he wasn't the son of a king, he was the son of Gideon who, who never was a king, um, and yet he holds to that title. We see Abimelech who, who has absolutely no right to, to be uh, uh, taking up any sort of throne or any sort of authority, and yet through his ambition he goes and does whatever it takes to secure that that he doesn't deserve to have. Um, we see uh, Abimelech uh, not have any degree of care for the people that he is entrusted to, or that, that, that have entrusted themselves to him. Instead, Abimelech only cares for what Abimelech can do. And this stands in stark contrast to our Savior. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, a very, very familiar passage, but I think in light of the story we just read, we'll, we'll, we'll perhaps uh, have, uh, have us look at it a little differently. So Paul is talking to the church at Philippi, and, and, and um, he is uh, uh, going to put before them uh, several examples of, of faithfulness and obedience, um, starting with Christ and then, and then talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and then also talking about himself. But first and foremost, the example that he gives is Christ. So starting in chapter 2, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Uh, let each one of you not only look to his own entrance, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you, uh, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So Abimelech uh, had this false claim to being king over Israel, and he did everything he could to grasp this, to, to, to strive to attain it. And yet Christ, who has every claim to be, to be king and ruler over all, and all authority on earth and in heaven has been given to him, he instead makes no, no uh, attempt at, at grasping after this power. Um, and instead, he lets this power go. Uh, verse 7, he emptied himself, 
By taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death. So Abimelech was only obedient to one person. That was himself. That's the only obedience that he knew. Uh, and his obedience and his loyalty was to his own selfish ambition and what he could make of himself. And Christ did right the opposite in that he humbled himself and his obedience uh, was to such a degree that he was obedient all the way to the point of death. Um, Abimelech died in an incredibly shameful way um, and, and uh, he, in trying to seek after more glory and more power, um, he, he was humbled uh, to die by this millstone falling on his head and then on top of that being too ashamed to die uh, by the hand of a woman. So he had uh, this uh, uh, servant uh, su- uh, suicide him. He had him, he had him kill him. Um, and I think it's interesting that Abimelech, his main purpose in doing that was to not be remembered as dying in a shameful way. And yet we all remember how shameful it was the way that he died. So Abimelech did not get what he wanted. And in searching after glory and in searching after exalting himself, um, he was humbled and he died in an incredibly humble way. Yet Christ humbled himself. He, uh, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he himself submitted to this humiliating death. Uh, and verse 9 tells us, Therefore um, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So seeing these two people and contrasting them, um, they couldn't be more different. Uh, Abimelech is, tried everything he could do to make his name great. And in doing so, uh, hardly anyone remembers his name. Uh, You know, I I would, unless you've studied the book of of Judges, you probably never heard the name Abimelech before, or maybe have read the story and then, and then you know, forgot it. But because Abimelech is is kind of a nobody, he's kind of a loser. He tried everything he could do to make himself great, and in doing so, humiliated himself. Um, and yet we see Christ doing everything He can do to humble Himself and submit Himself to God's authority to, and to be an obedient to God's will to the point where He dies. And we see that God exalts Him and that now His name is the greatest name. His name is the name above every name. Um, so that in, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, God, to the glory of God the Father. So Tonight, you know, it's really easy for us to look at Abimelech and say, oh yeah, that guy's awful, that guy's terrible. But we should be very cautious to, to look at our own lives, look at our own, our own choices that we make, our own, our own uh, ambitions and things that we strive after. Are we striving after God's will or are we striving after our own? Um, and if we do so, it'll be to our ruin. Uh, but instead, we should, like Paul tells us, have the attitude that Christ had of humbling ourselves, of, of not striving to attain some sort of name or position or, or, or uh, authority or, or, or power or anything like that. But instead, we should humble ourselves. We should be marked by humility. We should be marked by obedience. Um, and, and that is the way that, that someone is truly exalted, um, by, by being humble. Um, so I'll leave you with that. <clears throat> Let's pray.